when we reach um, five or six or seven, someplace in there. You begin to look forward to things. And you begin to look forward to going to school. And once we get to school, we begin to look forward to vacations from school. Christmas and Easter holiday and things like that. Then we begin to look forward to getting out of school <laughs> altogether and going to college. And uh, when we get to college, we we uh, look forward to deciding what our major will be. This usually takes a number of years. <laughs> a great deal of our parents' money. We're lucky enough to have parents who are helping us out. Then we look forward to getting a job and being somebody. So we get the job. And then we look forward to being promoted in the organization or rising to the top of the little heap that we have dug a hole in. And then, because the government has made it so easy to put money away for our retirement now, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, they'll put you in jail if you don't do it, we, uh, we look forward to retiring. Now, someplace in there, there's another set of goals that usually takes over. And that is, we get tired of time-oriented goals. We get tired of looking forward to one thing after another. This begins to lose its luster. And so, a new set of goals develops in which we sort of make our nest. We kind of settle down. We say, well, now I'm not going to run after anything else in the future. I'm just going to sort of uh, clean up my act. I'm going to find out who I am. That's a real good one. Uh, we can go to all kinds of groups and everything to find out who we are. And uh, I'm going to sort of tidy things up all around me. I'm going to get a new spouse. I'm going to get a new house, new car. I think I'll put in a little sod. You're not supposed to do that in New Mexico, but I like sod, so I'll I'll put that in. See, maybe grow a cottonwood tree. And we think that somehow, since we can't go after anything that will make us happy, that maybe there's some way to just sort of concern ourselves with the the details around us, the things that seem to affect us most the friends that we go out with, the town that we live in. But, of course, that doesn't work either. And most of you who come to the dispensable church have already begun to suspect all of this, or you wouldn't come here more than once. The <laughs> <laughs> Because the one thing you know you're not going to get at the dispensable church is a talk on how to make your life work. But you surely can remember when you thought that there was a way to make your life work. There was a way to be uh, very financially successful. And of course, there are ways to do that. To 
there's a way to have uh, nice friends, and there's a way to have good children, a nice house, and all that kind of thing. And so, the time has come probably for most of you in which you begin to realize that there is something else that's going to satisfy you or you will not be satisfied at all. Now, usually this happens late in life. Usually it's when the person is beginning to reach the end of their career or they're beginning to, uh, or they're actually in retirement. That's when they may draw close to God or they may draw close to bitterness in which they just look back and see all the waste and they say, what has it all amounted to? Now the job is over. Yes, I made, uh, I was vice president of General Motors or I was whatever it was. I had the best grocery store in town or whatever it may be. Now somewhere along the line there may be an experience. Someone may just have it. It may just seem to happen on some beautiful day while listening to music. It may seem to happen uh, during a severe illness, uh, just after a heart attack, for example. It may happen uh, because you lose someone very close to you, a member of your family, a loved one. But it may be someplace along there before you have reached this place where you see just by attrition alone that the world itself does not hold the prize that you thought it did that you suddenly experience another reality something intrudes itself upon consciousness and you feel the peace of God just for an instant and it's, it's breathtaking. Now that experience alone can make us unhappy because after we've had it, we now only can remember it. Or possibly you have just looked long enough at all of this and you say, there must be a better way and I will go for it, whatever that better way is. And so you end up studying A Course in Miracles or coming to the Dispensable Church or studying Krishnamurti or something in which the focus is on pure truth without, without any reward being offered you for a spiritual path. Physical health or financial health or eminence. <coughs> And so for most of you, you are hearing a message in this church that not many people are ready to hear. This doesn't make anybody further along because the message itself indicates that time itself is an illusion. And that although it appears that we wake up at different times and that some people are further along than others, that same body of truth that has come to this earth over and over again also states that when you wake up you will see that that it also was an illusion that you were ahead of someone else and that you woke up before they did 
that that sense of time is just as much an illusion as it was in the dream last night as to who got there first. But within the world, that does appear to happen. Some people seem to reach the point at which they realize there is no prize within the world, but God does indeed exist under whatever name you wish to call God. And that there is indeed something else to enter. Now at that point, we begin to lose our fear of the world. And just the opposite of what the ego thinks happens is what actually happens. So we reach the point in which we're not scared of this world anymore. We're willing to take whatever we wish that the world has to offer, and we're willing to decline whatever battles it suggests. We can walk around anything. We no longer have to appease every ego. We no longer have to give to other people because we think they need something, which is something that we often do when we first begin the spiritual path. We see these lacks in people. We see that they, that they don't know the truth, that they, that they have these holes in their personality, and we believe that somehow we're supposed to fill out the little holes. And this is not a happy thing to do, to think that someone else needs something and that we've got it and we've got to give it to them. Now, it's, it is happier to do that than to think that they've got something that we've got to take away from them. It's happier than that, but it's not completely happy because there's still this sense of tension of something having to be done first. And so very gradually and very gently we reach the point in which we don't have to give anything to anyone else. We realize that no one's actually getting hurt, and so we don't have to go out saving everybody rescuing them from this and that disaster. That there isn't anything to do to the world. That there's nothing to fear and there's nothing to judge in it. And when just a little of that realization dawns on thought, you will begin to have experiences that you haven't had before. For example, suddenly hearing the songs of birds. Your mind has now become quiet enough that you will hear bird songs when you haven't heard them before, so it's been a long time. Or you'll hear the rustling of the wind in the leaves. Or you'll feel the warmth of the sun on you. Or you'll look at this, at this soft bed of pine leaves that's under the, the pinyon trees. Now this is quite different than going out to have that experience. This is just suddenly you become quiet enough that you're having the experience. And you realize that you haven't had that experience maybe for a long time. Maybe since you were a little girl, a little boy, and you rolled around on the grass and you let the dog lick you in the face. And that's been unthinkable for years because you had to climb up the corporate ladder. You didn't have time for dog tongues. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe you plant some flowers but it's different now because now you're not a member of the garden club 
and they're not going to come around and inspect your bed, bed of flowers and grade them against the rest of them and give you a little ribbon, you see. You've got the biggest petunias. And this is such a happy state, and it's so interesting that when that state is reached, we find ourselves loving people because even in this world, which is itself an illusion, there is indeed much to delight us. And one of the interesting things about people as they progress and as they get closer and closer to relinquishing their <coughs> ego is that a time eventually comes in which a person is detached enough from the world that they can partake of all the delights and the pleasures of the world without any thought of indulgence or addiction or sin or anything else. They just look at it like we do when we suddenly realize at night that we're dreaming. We've all had that experience. So we wake up in the middle of a dream and realize it's a dream. We say, oh, this is a dream. And all of a sudden it becomes kind of fun. And the monster that's chasing us becomes kind of fun because we realize it's just a dream monster. And of all the delights in this earth, there is none greater than other people. But as long as we want things from other people, we cannot enjoy them. If we want their respect, we want them to think we are somebody, or that we're funny, or that we're intelligent, or that we're sexy, or that we're two inches taller than we really are because we found these shoes that, you know, <laughs> so forth. As long as we want something for other people, we can't. There's no way to enjoy them. But now we don't want anything from them. And so just the opposite of what the ego thinks would happen, which would be some sort of insular, selfish coldness. Because the ego looks upon detachment as, as a form of insensitivity. Now we can enjoy them. We can even enjoy their personalities. Just like we enjoy the personalities of of, uh, of animals. But as long as we judge people, we cannot enjoy them. Now, we have indeed gone beyond certain things, but there are a number of things that we have not gone beyond that we think we've gone beyond. Uh, we were at dinner uh, last night, at uh, Tecolote, which is now, we now have dinner there. And John discovered a moth on the, on the window on the other side of the room. Now, Tecolote, they actually want children. They even give the child a little toy to play with. That's how much they want them, you see. So your child can get out of the chair and visit people and whatever, you know. They don't care about that. <coughs> So he discovered the moth, you see. Well, Tecolote, he could go visit the moth. So got out of his chair. He'd go over and look at the moth, 
And then he would run back and he would tell us all the things that the moth had done, you see. Uh, it flapped its wings and that it, it had bitten him and it had done all this stuff, but it hadn't really bitten him and so forth. And then he would get down in a runner's stance and he'd run back to the moth and he'd look at it and so forth. And then he began, he began poking the moth, you see. <clears throat> well, after a while, he, he reported that the moth was not moving. <laughs> And he brought the he brought the moth back, <laughs> like the insurance company with good hands, you know. And uh, he said, he said, this is my favorite moth, and I think it's a little bit dead. <laughs> <laughs> so we tried all kinds of things. We tried standing it up and <laughs> turning it over. And we all agreed it was a little bit dead. <laughs> so we had had fish, and uh, the tecolote, the, the head of the fish, comes with the fish. But I had taken the head of the fish off, put it on a separate plate, and moved it as far away from it like <laughs> And John said, well, maybe, maybe the fish would like them off. <laughs> And so he put them off inside the mouth of the fish. <coughs> now, now, we're beyond that. We're beyond uh, looking. Insects are no longer an idol for us. I'm, uh, well, there may be somebody. <laughs> but probably, as a kid, you went through a stage in which you thought that there was a potential for great companionship in the insect kingdom. And you actually looked to insects for your happiness for a short period of time. You weren't sure whether you should kill them or put them in jars or pet them or what you should do. But isn't that the way we treat each other? <laughs> we don't quite know what to do, whether to put each other in jars or to, you know what to do. But still, we, it doesn't really make any difference what you do if, if, if it's the idol. If something is your idol, it doesn't matter whether you attack it or you praise it or you what you do. But you're looking to it for something, whether it's ex excitement or comfort. Now, we're beyond that. And so, when we see a little child say, this was my favorite moth, we don't get caught up in that. We don't get sad about that because we don't really think that he's lost true companionship. And so we can comfort the child. And so often we can do that with children because we are beyond what it is that they're caught up in at the moment. And so this allows us to comfort them. Whereas if we really did think this was a tragedy, we couldn't comfort them. We would feel crushed by the event along with them. And we would merely join them in their sorrow rather than being in a position to lift them from their sorrow by comforting them and so forth. Now the same thing is true when we judge people by their appearances. 
we have a look here in Santa Fe. Every town seems to have its look. And if someone doesn't fit into the look, we will tend to judge them and talk about how they look and so forth. However, if we do that, we are not beyond it. We think we're beyond whatever it is we're criticizing about this person. Maybe it's the way the person talks. Maybe the person brags a lot about how much money they have or uh, whatever it may be that we think we're beyond. But if we judge it, we're not beyond it. We're still reacting to it. And we can't love the person. And we can't enjoy their personality. We've talked a great deal about peace here. But there is no peace without joining. There's no peace without at least a little feeling of connectedness with other people. And we've got to find some way to feel this or we will not have the peace of God and we will not make progress. And it's all right to feel it even if in the beginning this is a pretense that we are joining the truth within the other person. That we're joining with the, the deep urges in their heart. Even if we just had to imagine what those deep urges might be because they're within our heart too. We know this person must long for the same things. Maybe we close our eyes and imagine what it is they long for. Imagine they're traveling the same road waiting for vacations, waiting to get out of high school, waiting to get their degree, waiting to get their spouse, waiting to get their promotion the disappointments and so forth. Maybe we, we we just for a moment pause and realize they've gone through exactly the same thing we've gone through. But there's this longing within them that keeps them going and going and going and they don't know what they're looking for. We know they want that and so somehow we reach out and join with that person. Unless there's joining, there can be no peace and there can't be any joining unless there is a willingness to receive. And very often on a spiritual path, people very quickly discover the delight of giving and of helping other people. This often comes quite quickly. But also very often a reluctance to receive develops along with it. This is especially apparent uh, many times when, when people on a spiritual path get sick. They do not want to admit that they are sick, and they were reluctant to seek help from someone who could help them. But even in this earth, there is a chain of brotherhood, of people helping people helping people. It's very interesting to look at the world this way. Everybody, in a sense has a little special gift that they are able to give certain people. Those people receive the gift. It becomes part of their gift, which they alone can give, and they give it to other people. And so, MDs, for example, 
have a special gift that they can give. They do, in fact, have a gift. People that give massage have a gift. People that that work in a store and know clothing and know what looks good on someone and can select something for for their client that will look good on them and make them happy. They have a special gift. They can they have an instinct about this. To go into a store and know that there's someone in the store who could do this for you and out of pride not receive the gift, somehow you're supposed to be able to select it, is to fail to join this chain of brotherhood. To be sick and to not go to someone who could help you because you think you should be further along is to not receive love. And if we only give love, then there is a sadness that comes over us. This is often called burnout, but it isn't burnout because nothing is burned out. It is the feeling of I'm giving and I'm giving and I'm giving and I'm not getting anything back. And so often people on a spiritual path, because they very often put themselves in situations in which they are giving a great deal, and they are genuinely helping people, often begin to develop this, uh, this sense of uh, depression, this heaviness of heart, and they don't know where it's coming from. It's coming from an unwillingness that is developed at the same time to receive what others have to offer. And I'd like to suggest a little game for you to play. Just the rest of the day, if you want to. Be a receiver only. So go out and notice that everything that you look upon is giving you a little gift. That little bush out there, that little tree, the breeze, the, the, the little walk, the little inclined walk that's been put here uh, for wheelchairs. Uh, which uh, someone forgot that there's a, <laughs> there's a considerable hill to go up and, <laughs> and numerous steps, but still it was a nice thought, you see. <laughs> if the crane could lift the wheelchair all the way up here. <laughs> so communication which is the giving and receiving of love, exists on all levels. And we must be open to all the levels or else it stops and we get discouraged and something's going on in our life and we don't know what it is and it's not working and we feel stuck. It's because we're not open to all the levels of communication. Animals have such wonderful things to, to give us and people cut themselves off from animals. They'll develop a prejudice against cats or against dogs or against something, you know, birds because of what they do to the hood of their car. <laughs> but look, at, look. there's no doubt, you, you come across a, a real good animal trainer and they are receiving the love of God through the animals that they work with. The, uh, the man who trained... The dog Strongheart, maybe someone remembers his name, 
wrote a book, Kinship with All Life. Does anyone remember his name? Uh, he, in that book, Kinship with All Life, he talks about uh, even uh, communication with, with flies and so forth. Uh, having the fly put a line down the center of his hand and got where he could have the fly land on either the right or the left side of the, of the line. Uh, whereas in my kitchen, the ant actually, this actually happened, crawled up and started eating my sandwich. <laughs> I mean, he, he's eating my sandwich, I was sitting there eating my sandwich, and no respect whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, Rodney Dangerfield is nothing compared to this. And so I took my little finger and I spanked its little red behind. <laughs> now, the problem with spanking uh, an ant is that it sometimes loses some legs if you do the gut. <laughs> Be very careful. <laughs> That's very gentle. <laughs> We have an inventor here, and that's that's something, an ant spanker that won't <laughs> decapitate them. So communication takes place on all levels. If we'll just open ourselves up, if we won't make ourselves travel such a strict and narrow and rigid path to the love of God, if we'll just open up and partake of the bounty even in this earth, we will begin to experience what these people, crazy people, talk about, about talking to plants and so forth. But we all know people like that, just love their plants. And the plants respond. There's no question about it. They see the love of God coming through this, whatever this is. These elderly, dying people. Whoever it is that they work with. But there need be no limit. We don't need to keep people out of our circle of love because they don't have the Santa Fe look or because they're loud in restaurants, you see. If you will think just for a moment of some long-time friend, some old friend, perhaps you'd like to try to recall just an old friend to your thought right now. Now, as you look back on that relationship, notice that you cannot remember what has been said between the two of you. There may be a very few snatches of conversations that, that you will remember. Just a few words will come to your mind. But notice you cannot remember of all the hundreds of hours of words that has passed between the two of you how many can you recall? 10, 15 words? Maybe a few subjects that were discussed? Quite vague. But notice that you can remember the tone. You can remember the tone of the relationship. You can even remember the periods of the tone of the relationship, where the tone would vary. So there is no trick to communication with another person. We simply concentrate on the tone and not on what's being said. Now, one of the mistakes people on a spiritual path make is that they think they have to select spiritual friends. And actually, because that is a judgment, 
you are likely to have far, find your spiritual friends far more difficult than your unspiritual ones because of the judgment that's been made, you see. So here you've got this unspiritual friend. And you, and you meet the unspiritual friend, and on the, you know, you're in the plaza, and the unspiritual friend says, uh, how you doing? And you say, oh, doing fine, how you doing? Oh, just great. Sure good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Take it easy. Yeah. No one was hurt. People passed by. Now you meet your spiritual friend. You say to your spiritual friend, Great day, isn't it? Spiritual, call your spiritual friend Bob. Great day, isn't it, Bob? Bob says, Well, <laughs> you know, uh, all things are a projection. <laughs> and if you think it's a great day, it's because you are so great. You are seeing your own greatness in the day. Now what's happened? Suddenly it's not such a great day anymore. But they talk spiritual. What they, what they said was actually true. You see. But you didn't like hearing that. Even though it was a compliment, you didn't like hearing it. I have a friend... Um, who has a mother-in-law who uh, is the past master at this kind of uh, compliment. Recently, she bought, actually her husband bought a very unusual antique ring. She had the ring on her finger. It was a, an unusual ring. You couldn't help noticing it. And her husband's mother was there. They were sitting on the couch. And the woman's name is Charlotte. She took Charlotte's hands into her own. She said, Charlotte, you have the most beautiful hands. They are just magnificent. I so hope that someday you can afford fine jewelry. <laughs> but she couldn't say anything because she'd received a compliment about her beautiful hands, you see. So we don't have to pick people by the way they talk. People are not, not more spiritual because their egos say spiritual things. People are more spiritual because of the comfort that they exude and the peace that they exude. If you feel peaceful around someone, then your relationship with them is more spiritual in that sense. But just because they say things that you're studying or something doesn't mean that they are any they are a better candidate for, for friendship. Now another way that this can be looked at is in the case of illness. So, so for example in people on a spiritual path they will turn first to mental means of healing instead of turning first to comforting the person that's sick. And when we do that, we will feel a great deal of fear because we have not done all that we can do physically. So we first 
comfort the person physically, and then we turn to mental means to help them. Why? Because love is what's important. The tone is what's important. Not whether or not we're doing mental work or we're doing physical work, but whether or not we are expressing love in our terms and it's being received in a way that they can understand it. We actually have before us in any conversation two people. There are literally two people standing there. One is the ego and the other is the child of God. Now to most of us, this is not apparent. This is only something that we know intellectually and that we've sensed occasionally. But nevertheless, it is a fact. And so when you wish to communicate with someone, you communicate on a tone level, or in other words, you communicate on a heart level. You simply concentrate on being at peace around this person. You simply concentrate on being comfortable around this person, and automatically the child of God in you is now communicating to the child of God in them, and it makes no difference what they're saying what they're doing, what they're wearing. Now perhaps you would like to know how you can break communication. <laughs> Let's talk about some ways in which if you want to break communication, you can do so. If you want to ruin a good friendship or a good conversation or a nice feeling, bring the party down very quickly, whatever it is. How can that be done? Well, the first way is to share this thing that you are so pleased about that's happened to you. You want to share this. When everyone says, I have something I want to share with you, you say, have you seen my new jacuzzi? <laughs> Have you seen my new wife in my new jacuzzi? <laughs> and what you want to say is, but you don't say it, of course, is, every man in town has seen your wife. <laughs> that's, what you, that's the response that this calls forth. Why? Because it's one ego communicating to another ego, you see. <laughs> Well, now, if you, if you communicate back on an ego level, which we are tempted to do, then, of course, there is no love, there is no peace, there is this cold, bloody wall that's erected, and we do, in fact, go away damaged, and there is no way we can enjoy the sunlight hitting the leaves or anything else. And we actually may feel even a, a sort of weakness in our body because of this attack that we've launched. But nevertheless, we can go back and now bless this individual if we've made that mistake. We can correct it. It's never too late. Compliment is another one. This seems to be a way in which we can draw people to us, is to compliment them. But the fact is that 
compliments are almost always directed to the ego. So we're in fact trying to breathe life into the other person's ego. There is a, a book called Inner Tennis in which uh, it's suggested that you compliment the person on their serve as you're changing courts if, in fact, you want their serve to deteriorate very rapidly. <laughs> so when we compliment someone, we, in fact, are saying to them, you are set apart, which is another way of saying, you are lonely. And so this isn't a happy community. This is a break in communication. There's no real love. There's no real joining. Many of us have certain verbal skills that we that we would like to use when we're with other people. Maybe we have a great deal of knowledge about uh, a variety of subjects. Possibly we are uh, capable of being witty. There's a difference between wittiness and humor. Wittiness separates and makes people feel funny. So, for example, maybe you've seen the ad on television in which uh, the person, uh, the guy goes up to him with a, with a little tie and the lights are going off and everything, and, and uh, he says, uh, what's wrong, Sam? The old chopper's loose? Seen that ad on television? And the guy, because the guy was pushing off his dishes like this, you see, and the guy comes in and hits him on the, what's wrong, Sam? The old chopper's loose? You see? Well, this doesn't make Sam feel good at all. That's, that could be called wittiness. Now, there's a guy in um, Denver named Dr. Fred. I, uh, Jerry and I go up there and speak at his church every once in a while. And uh, he and I have this thing going, which we get in front of the audience and, and we, we sort of zing each other. But let me, sh let me tell you the way he zinged me the last time. <laughs> he said... Uh, he said, now, he said, you all probably know Hugh Prather, uh, and you probably also know that he is living proof that growing a beard causes brain damage. <laughs> he said, I was, I was talking to him before he came out, and I asked him if he had any trouble getting things in his beard. He said, no, he just had trouble getting them out. And he went on and on, you see, about this. Now, that, of course, was completely harmless. There's no, that didn't make me feel uncomfortable. That made me feel joined. So there's humor that makes people feel welcomed and, and hugged and so forth. and makes everyone feel ill at ease. And then there's the, the kind of humor that makes people laugh, but they feel uneasy. They feel separate, and they feel divided into groups, and they feel like they've been put in some sort of category, even though the other category is being derided. There is a, a fourth way of breaking communication is, is kindness that is motivated by guilt. Uh, I was talking to uh, a couple who are in their 60s, uh, He's a very successful businessman, uh, retired now, semi-retired. And uh, a friend of his sent him as a house gift $5,000. Now, they were just, they didn't know what to do with this. The only thing they could do is send the money back. This, this was not 
this was this was something that was obviously done out of guilt. He didn't. He is not a man that needed money and to receive five thousand dollars through the mail as a housewarming gift uh, just made them feel uncomfortable. And so often, when we feel like we've damaged someone, we will then go about trying to make them feel better. But if there is this tinge of guilt, if there's this little feeling of anxiety before we speak, then what we are doing is actually breaking communication. Because if what we are doing is speaking out of guilt, the other person then feels that they, in fact, have been damaged. So what we, in fact, are saying to them is, you are damaged. And no one likes to feel damaged. If we do something out of guilt, that's what we're saying to them. So even though it seems to be a very kind thing, the person thinks, oh, you think I'm damaged. You think there's something wrong with me. You think you yourself have hurt me and that I'm, I'm less because of that. Because your gift has this sense of anxiety about it. So one very simple rule is that whenever you feel a sense of anxiety, whenever you feel this stab of guilt, before you speak, don't speak. Don't act. Just fall back into the peace of God. Because the peace of God joins with the tone, joins with the heart, joins with the level of communication that takes place between us and animals, between us and the, the children of God. It takes place on that level. If someone comes up and says to you, I have something I want to tell you, but you promise you won't tell anybody? And then they go about telling you that someone had told them something in confidence, you see. And they're going to tell you what this something was, but you're not supposed to tell anyone. Now, that happens to all, all the time. I promise you won't tell anyone. And then you remember the 16 things that you told this very person. And you realize that those have probably been spread all over the place because now they're breaking a confidence and they're asking you not to do so. So whenever we launch an attack on someone who's not there, this does not draw us closer to the person that we are with. But this is a very common device that people use in an attempt to gain a sense of intimacy. They will talk about someone who's not there. Now, in listing all these things, none of this, of course, means that we should not do these things, but simply be aware that they are going on. And being aware that they're not going on, you can move to the tone level. So in simply being aware that someone is now launching an attack on someone else, that awareness will allow you not to not participate in the conversation, which will just make them feel guilty but will allow them to feel joined with you because you can add a softness and a gentleness. Being right is another way of breaking communication. Whenever we choose to be right in a conversation. So we hear people uh, telling a story and then suddenly their spouse steps in. The deer... Uh, I don't think it was 35 miles. Uh, I think it was 36 and a half. You know, we've heard that. has nothing to do with the story and, you know, and all that kind of thing. Being right 
as uh, David Poole says, the only thing that you will get from being right is a temporary sense of, of feeling smarter. It's the only thing that will come from it. It's just this little boost to the ego. But it's, notice how lonely and cold it is to be right. Construct, constructive criticism is another one. So someone shows you the painting that they've been working on, you know, for 16 years, working on this painting. Now this is, of course, this is a situation we find ourselves in very often. Someone's just bought a new dress. Someone is just, uh, whatever, they've just fallen in love. They've just... Uh, gotten new drapes or they whatever the thing is or they've been working on this and they say what do you think <laughs> and you know what you think and so what do you do now what oftentimes happens is that people immediately panic and they'll feel very very antsy and they think that somehow they've got to stay in this panicked antsy sort of state during this whole thing like it's like they're like this and they don't know what to say and so forth, but somehow they just got to stay like this. And uh, they say, well, I don't know. If I, uh, well, I, I think I do like that. Well, that's a very interesting painting. Because uh, <laughs> we don't want other people, we don't want to fall out of, you know, the good graces of the other person. Now, if, if we'll just pause, we'll just fall back into peace, People just realize that the person's not going to remember what you said. The person's going to remember whether or not you love them, whether or not you appreciate them, whether or not you supported them, you see. And something will come to you to do that if you realize that your purpose is a sense of joining. This is a child of God. This person walks home with you. This is a person in whose hand is your hand. This is far more important than their painting. So you don't either have to lie or do you have to be bluntly honest because neither of those have anything to do with joining. You simply remember that your purpose is to make them happy and relaxed and you fall back into that and then act with peace and say what you say. And maybe you'll say, well, you know, I've, I recently I've been reading all these books uh, 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 by Tom Wolfe and everything about contemporary art, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my anti-contemporary art stage or something. And you know, they won't feel personally attacked, you know, because we all don't we all change our opinions of what's good dress and what's good painting and what's good furniture all the time. You see, the last thing that will break communication is questions. Questions are not helpful. And this is something that therapists often fall into. They think that somehow asking people questions is a part of therapy. But therapy is simply the calling forth of love. And a question very often makes someone feel defensive. It's not that you should eliminate all questions from your conversation, but if you find yourself sort of rapidly shooting out a series of questions, 
you can be pretty sure that this is a separating, a dividing procedure. We tend to rush into conversation if we're feeling antsy. And one of the ways that we rush into it most frequently is by asking other people questions. But there's no joining in that. It's simply, all we're saying is, I don't know something and you know it, but they, of course, know what's going on. They know that we're anxious. Now, what happens if someone knows that you're anxious? They know that they are anxiety-producing. I mean, what else can you conclude? If someone's anxious in your presence, it means that you are anxiety-producing. That's not really true, but that's the, that's the general feeling we get. So there is nothing that can be done out of anxiety that is kind. If ever you find yourself scared in front of someone that you're having a conversation, there isn't anything you can say that will heal the situation, make them like you, put them at ease, build a relationship or anything else until the anxiety is gently turned from and you fall back into peace. So let me summarize this. Communication is allowed. There is no effort to be expended. All we need in order to communicate with the people around us and to love and enjoy our friends and to see that our children are a blessing, and to notice the trees, and feel the wind, is to not expend any effort to keep them out. It's to cease all pushing away. And the one thing that pushes everything away from us, that pushes our present happiness because we have our mind locked on some future gain some future advancement. The only thing that will allow us to feel this flooding of light that comes even from power lines and cars that, that don't have pollution systems on them and nuclear power plants and pickets for the wrong cause. The one thing that will allow us to see the love of God streaming from every one of these things is simply to be at peace, to be at rest, and to not be afraid. And to just be aware of your fear will allow the fear to drop away. So when you find yourself with people, notice that you are afraid. You're afraid of what you're going to say. You're afraid that you might hurt the relationship. You're afraid that you might offend the person. You're afraid that they may not think you're intelligent enough. You're afraid that they may not think you're strong enough. Notice that the fear is an absolute barrier. It's totally heartless and bloodless. It keeps you locked away from life. It is a living death to be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid of any remedy. 
Take any remedy. Don't be afraid of any person. Take any friend. Don't think that there are only a few people who can be your friends. Anyone can be your friend. Don't write someone off because they don't have the education or the background or the position or they're the wrong age. Have any friend. Love any place. Enjoy any task. And the way to do that is simply to notice that you are afraid. And noticing that you are afraid the fear will evaporate. Your calm attention is the light of God. It vaporizes it. There is no peace without joining. So join with everything you see. Say, I love you to everything. But do not say what about it you love. Let it tell you let it give its gift to you. Let people help you. Just go through one day and see that how anxiously everyone wants to please. This is a fact. Walk into any store. Just see how... Now, they're doing it the wrong way, I grant you. But see that they want to please. And you're going to you're just going to be a limp rag doll in their hands. You're just going to let them love you and please you and delight you. You're going to be a little harp. They want to play a tune on that harp. Let them play it. Let God delight you with the sunlight. Let God delight you with the stones that are on the ground. God wants you to delight, wants to delight you with that. That is communication.